0: February twenty second, the first of the year on Hatayhem Shaw Rishone, the sins of the uh To take some ideas that are quite familiar and other ideas that are not so familiar, and he enforces them as a way of reading verses and incidents in the Tanakh. And if you keep it in mind, it can save you from a lot of wasted effort in trying to understand things that they place in the Tanakh. So he starts. When we hear that a person has performed a crime, Adela. We cannot know at all what level the severity of the crime is intended. When the, when the report is performed in Avla, it's impossible for us to know just from the bare words he did in Avla what the severity of the crime is that was, that was uh, committed. Unless we also know character of the person of whom it's being said and his moral level. Because the value of a crime depends upon the type of character that the person has who is describing the crime. We're talking now about the character of the person speaking the words. He says, so-and-so did, and I, now, I don't know if I said that was so much, I was really a, 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 a Yiddish word. It, it means crime, but with, with a kind of, a uh, uh, it, it, it's, it expresses Good. almost disgust, you know, it's like, putting an ablut is weird. You have a small, small moral revulsion to what the person has done. For example, for in Ndomorra, For him, committing an avva includes not speaking the truth in your heart. Meaning, you think something in your heart, you make up your mind to do something, you don't carry it out, that's already a crime. That's already a crime. Or, someone repeats over an idea and doesn't, Say it in the name of the person who told it then. Now, for most people, if I make up my mind to do something in my heart, I don't tell anybody, it's perfectly okay to change my mind. I didn't promise anybody anything. Here's a case where, to most people, this is regarded as perfectly permissible, normal behavior. For our stock, it's a terrible crime. A no um, I hear I think of information. I'm an active person, I read a lot. I talk to people, I hear things. Am I required to remember the source of every piece of information I pick up? And now that's remembered, but to repeat it, I heard this from here, and heard that from him, and heard that from Most people don't regard that as their responsibility. It's horrible to hear things until to get where they come from. Proceptor, as he quotes here, says that this is an aspect of, of theft. Not everybody would regard it as such. But now, if a sufferer says that a crime has been committed, or the author of the Proceptor says a crime has been committed, he may be talking about something which to the rest of us isn't a crime at all. To us, it's just trivial or normal, normal behavior. So in order to understand what's meant when someone says, Crime has committed, you have to know the standard of the person who's speaking. There are those who think, on the contrary, that fraud, misleading your competitor, withholding information, is perfectly all right. That's normal business competition. Industrial espionage. Get yourself better safeguards if you don't want me to steal your information that is perfectly normal. So what would he mean when he says somebody committed a great crime? Maybe he took a submachine gun and blew up people on the street. Now, how far would he have to go for him to be impressed and more than involved by an action? Whereas, because his standards of what's normal are so low. There are people who steal, and for whom stealing is, is perfectly normal, acceptable behavior. If that sounds extravagant to you, my wife had a book many years ago called The Professional Thief. It was in-depth view of the guy, who would the that And his philosophy was, everybody steals. Uh, the white-collar businessman, you know, works for IBM, uses his telephone to call his girlfriend in Alaska, and the taxi driver doesn't print the receipts for you so cheap cheat the government. Everybody steals. Obviously, by people's behavior, you see they're stealing with regard to their own. Okay, I pick people's pockets. So what? You know? Um, stock manipulation and all the rest of it. The only difference between them and me, said this guy, is that I'm honest. I tell the truth. And I'm pretty prepared to admit it. Everybody else is stealing and pretending he's not stealing. No, I don't do. <laughs> you know, I'm willing to say that. So here's a person who whose standards are that low. When he says a crime has been committed, he's not gonna be talking about murder. He's not gonna be talking about so, theft. The, The expression that a crime is committed is relative to the the standards the person is making the statement. Now, what happens when the Torah says a crime is committed? How are we supposed to interpret that? What kind of standard does the Torah use when it expresses the phrase of a crime being committed? We expect it to be The highest of the evaluations, he says. He refers to another essay that he wrote. God says to Isaiah the prophet in chapter 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways, says Hashem, just as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways and my thoughts are above yours the Torah is going to express God's evaluation, we have to be aware, we have to be careful not to read God's word that he reveals to us as we would take them from the The New York Times or Time Magazine or, or some other more common uh, source. Therefore he says, it's understood that when the Torah describes what it calls crimes, the analysis is extremely fine. Extremely detailed. Like a microscopic analysis. Even microscopic is not careful enough to explain to, to express the Precision and penetration of the Torah's analysis. For example, the Torah says when Moses hit the rock, God says to Moses, "Speak to the rock." Moses hit the rock. The immediate response God God says to him, "Because you didn't." Mami, in me, to sanctify me, you're not going to Jewish people into the land of Israel. Now, Lami is usually translated as to believe. Of course, I take that literally and the way we talk. Of course, this in me, therefore... So we are supposed to think, that Moses and Aaron became atheists for a little bit? Maybe they listen to God, you know? Maybe the universe is really accidental. Maybe all the voices we heard are just dreams, and, and uh, That's insane. But on the other hand, the word is, you didn't believe in me. So what you have to understand is that the Torah is describing a lack of belief in Moses. And yet the Torah is penetrating to an extremely fine, extremely narrow, extremely tiny detail of Moses' performance, which in the Torah's point of view is a lack of belief. And one proof of it is the commentators struggle to figure out what exactly Moses' crime was. But easy to figure out on the spot what the, the crime was. the crime counts ten different interpretations of what the crime was. And he has objections against all of them. And then he breaks an eleven <laughs> and which means that the Torah does not make a clear statement of what the crime was. Now, you know, we read that little paragraph. God says to speak, and uh, Moses hits the rock, and says, because you didn't believe in me. But it doesn't say, because you didn't believe in me, I do hit the rock. It just says, because you didn't believe in me. So, one has to look for some kind of proof. What in the description of the event is the failure? And indeed, for example, some of the say that it wasn't the to do for the city day. Listen now, you rebels. Who told, told them to call them rebels? Maybe that's the crime. Or well, maybe something else. And what we have out here is an illustration of a Talmudic statement. God is exacting the uh, very exactly in simple language. He um, criticizes and calls to account those who are close to him to a hair's breadth. To a hair, breadth. To the, the breadth of a hair. Now that already means that's only for them. God has a sliding scale. He doesn't evaluate everyone in the same way. Which, if you think about it, is just plain morality. Obviously, you can't expect two people from different backgrounds, different talents, different education, different family upbringing to behave in the same way. And what for one person will be a terrible crime for somebody else will be, well, you can expect from them, you can't expect them, to be them So when the Torah is talking about someone like Moses and it uses the language of crime, we have to appreciate what the language means. Just like a year of Safra criticizing another one of his colleagues, one of the great Ravona of the time, and saying he committed a crime, it's <coughs> you know. It probably wasn't armed robbery, you know, It probably wasn't burning down his neighbor's house. Tell so about Rav Safra, for whom? Making up your mind to you do know something and not carrying it out. is a crime to so something like that. Because in his mouth, like to these people, that's what counts as a crime. Here, when the Torah describes the the crimes of the greats of the world, you have to appreciate where the state is coming from. This too you need to know. The language that the Torah uses to describe the sins of the great is according to its own evaluation, according to its level of evaluation. So that the Torah will use a word which has a meaning to us, and the Torah doesn't intend that meaning. When the Torah says "thief," it could very little mean. well mean no, what the sapper calls a thief, or well, the Torah to calls the thief. You said over something without without um, without saying the source where you heard it. So that we have to be very careful now. Uh, let me try to explain what it the means in philosophical terms. We're not saying, you can't trust the language of the scholar, the Tola is not always literal, you have to understand the sometimes and sometimes figuratively, that's not what's being said. That's not what's being said. What's being said is, the literal meaning of the word in this context is different from what you think. Um, he made a big problem. Are we talking about the CEO of General Motors? We're talking about your 10-year-old child who set up a lemonade stand in the summer to sell lemonade to people who are passing by. Now, if I say, I'm talking about my 10-year-old, then he made $25 profit in two days. That's not taking the phrase big profit and giving it another meaning, a poetical meaning and so on and so on. When you're talking about a 10-year-old's lemonade stand, $25 is a big profit. When you're talking about the CEO of General Motors, so then it's $2 million is a big profit. Is that the words change their meaning? Is that the meaning of the word depends upon the context in which it's used? It depends upon who's talking uh, He made a terrible mistake. Who? Einstein. Because he got 96 on the exam instead of 105. Instead of somebody else. That wouldn't be a big mistake. It depends upon the context in which it's used who's using it. So when the Torah uses words that describe crimes, and we say it was a very ethereal, very tiny, very subtle matter, someone says, what do you mean? It says theft. It says murder. It says adultery. We're not taking the words out of the normal meaning. What we're saying is, in this context, this speaker applied to this subject, the word has, a mean, has this meaning. It's a literal meaning in this context. won by a large margin. If you're talking about the 100-yard dash, a large margin can be half a second. If you're talking about the marathon, a large margin it better be three or four minutes at least. We're not playing with the word. It's not a, 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 a metaphorical or or, or a fanciful meaning. Large margin in the 100-yard dash is one thing. And a large margin in the marathon is something else. It just is something else.
1: Here's
0: one for the future another for the another four. Three hairs on your head is not a lot. Three hairs in your soup a lot. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Three hairs in your head is not a lot. Three hairs in your soup is a lot. Quite right. Quite right. <laughs> Those are the sort of these paragraphs. <laughs> I don't think that's something else. All right. So now, he says, I'll give you an explicit example of this. The incident with Ahab. Now, when Joshua um, attacked Jericho, and of course, what he did, several made, the circle that seven made, and the walls fell down. He made a, a pronouncement: No one should benefit from the booty of dirt. None of it is going to be for our profit. We're not taking any of That was the law. Now, the, the Tanakh says, the book of Joshua says, God said to Joshua, Choto Yisroel, the Jewish nation, Jewish people, has sinned. And they violated my covenant. And the verb is plural. They violated my covenant. And they took from the forbidden material. And they stole And they lied. And they hid it. And all the verbs are plural. There's forbidden material in your midst, O Israel and you're not going to be able to fight the rest of your battles until you remove that good material from your from your midst. Now, if I read these words with the dictionary, and without taking the context into account, is Yisrael, Israel sinned. Now, maybe that's not every man, last man, woman, and child. I would normally assume it's 50%. You're, you're, you're condemning the whole nation. At least 50%. If it was a minority, why would you say the nation sinned? You say some Jews sin. No, Chata Yisrael. And then all the verbs are plural. But what happened actually was only one person. Only Acha. He was the only person to steal from the Kher. From and we know that because of how it was subsequently resolved. Joshua said to God, who's guilty? God said, look at Faith directly, perform the following test. And the test was performed, and Acha was the only person identified, and he was punished, and they went to the next battle, and they were successful. So it's absolutely clear from the text that Ocham was the only one who violated the ban. Nevertheless, the Tanakh uses phraseology, which, if you're not aware of who the speaker is and the standards of the speaker, you would get a completely wrong impression as to the extent of the crime. If we wouldn't know how the, accent, the event leads this way, surely we would have thought that if not the whole of the Jewish people, at least the majority sin, or at least some large uh, representative portion of the people, 30%, 20%. But in actuality, says with well, us what happened, the Torah, the Tanakh uh, informs us that only one person did. And even so, From from the whole of our Jewish community, only one person took from the band the third. How could that be uh, reconciled with the phrase, Israel Israel has sinned, and they have stolen, and they have lied, and they have hidden? What you have to understand now, let's not make a mistake here, we're not saying. Well, you see, that's the way it goes. It's an exaggeration. It's one person and he's called Israel. That's already absurd. That's already absurd. If it says Israel, it's got to be everybody. Or the majority. It's got to be. So it means that when it says that Israel sinned and stole and everything else, it means they're implicated in the crime. They're implicated in the crime. They have some kind of connection to the crime, which in the Torah's the vocabulary could be called stealing and lying and, and uh, violating the van, even though in actual physical terms they didn't do that. We have to search for their sin in the recesses of the heart, the, the slivers of consciousness in the heart, according to their level. And you see how, how the analysis goes. Uh, in this particular case of Ochan, what's revealed is a subtle lack in their in, in the the connection of the Jewish people with God. Because we all know the great impact that community standards have on the. Uh, behavior of the individual. What the the Tanakh is telling us is that if the community standards had been higher in their connection to God and their rejection of any illicit behavior, he never would have been able to do it. And this failure, the failure of intensity and consistency of community standards justifies the language of the map which says they're all stole, and they all cheated and they're all lied, and they're all hit it, and all broke the covenant even though in physical terms only one man did it. Now, let me just make this a little real to you. He stole gold, silver and clothes and he hid them. What was he going to do with that? Come back and get it later. Come back and get it later. Good. And what was he going to do then? Buy stuff with it? What about the clothes, the bathrobe with the Jericho cut? <laughs> the Jericho style. Is he going to use them? Is his family going to become aware of this? Will they turn him in? They won't turn him in? Will the neighbors notice when he buys a you know, 2007 Jaguar? Hi, on! You're the shoemaker. Where would you get the money for that? Oh, it came in the mail. Right? <laughs> He's counting on the fact that people will look the other way. They'll look the other way. They won't hold him to account. Imagine if he thought, if anybody found out, they would just ostracize us- No one would ever talk to him. No one would ever count him again. They wouldn't marry his children. You know, they'd throw him out of the community. Who would risk it? How do I know? I'll prove it to you. Uh, look at how social pressure works even today. In the Haredi world, uh, there are either 0 or 0.000001 percent of Haredi women who smoke. I suppose you could find maybe 6 out of a million who smoke in private with nobody's looking. It's just not done. The men smoke, which is a terrible thing. Situation. Totally inappropriate. The men smoke and the women don't. What's the difference? The same population, the same religion, the same believers, the same literature. There's a social rejection of women's smoke. And it works extremely well. And there's no social rejection of men's smoke. Too bad. There should be. I wish there were. It be. Same thing's true with alcoholism. Are there Jewish alcoholics? Yes. Are there Haredi alcoholics? Yes. But the percentage is vanishingly small. It's very, very small. As opposed to the, as opposed to the general population, it's extremely small. Why? Because it's not acceptable. It's just in not acceptable. World, it's not what? In the world, I'm You don't know about. what you're talking about. I grew world. up in that world. Let me tell you something. In the outside world, people brag about getting drunk. And each one brags that he drank more than the other guy and did more not crazy things when not he was about drunk. being
1: an alcoholic.
0: If you brag about it, if drinking, if you brag about it, and getting drunk, then people will become alcoholics. They'll become it because drinking and getting drunk is socially praiseworthy behavior. Whereas in our case, getting drunk is awful. It's just awful. You not even look at such a person. He couldn't tell anybody, Oh, you should have seen me last night. Boy, was I drunk. You can't do that. You can't do that. No one will look at you. The social pressure is terrific now, Professor says, How did Malcolm think he was going to get away with this? Because he counted on the fact that if people heard about it, oh, okay, so good. that they would a lot. Had there been a stronger connection to evangelical commitment to Torah and revulsion for failure, he never would have been able to do it. That failure of moral tone, we could call it, of moral tone and moral focus was described in the words of the Tanakh, they stole, they lied, they cheated, they broke the covenant, when in physical terms didn't do anything. Only one man did. So you have to know how to read it. You have to know how to read it. And again, this is not figurative use. It's not figurative use. <laughs> oh, I quote. <won't> it. <laughs> it was the president who said something. Anyway, the same thing is true which you find in the golden cap. What does God say to Moses? When Moses is on the mountain. He says to him, go down because your nation has behaved destructively. And it says, uh, they made a molten calf, and they bowed to it, and they, and they um, offered sacrifices to it, and they said, this is what took you out of Egypt. Now, if you read that verse straight through, these two verses, if you read those verses straight through, you would have the impression that the whole of the Jewish people were involved in the golden calf. Or at least a, a, a very sizable percentage, because it just says, Acha, your people! Doesn't make any distinctions at all. Still, what happens at the end of the incident? Moses says to the Levites, to execute the criminals, and about 3,000 men are killed. That's about 3,000 men out of 600,000 men together with 600,000 women of whom there were no criminals. Only male criminals, no female criminals. So from the words, you end up with an extremely small percentage of actual criminals. And even so, in the words that are spoken, you find a description which sounds like they all deserve to be destroyed. But here too, we're talking about an analysis in the tiny, subtle details of belief and, and, and performance, not in gross idol worship. In gross idol worship, the percentage was vanishingly small. If you look at the Ezra and the Ramban and others, you see that what they really wanted was a substitute link for Moses. I've always shared this, you can get it on website. And they wanted it only to connect with God because they thought that Moses was gone. As a Kodesh Baruch who from time to time did himself give them a link with of course, like the copper snake so as to focus their connection and attention to him. Only the Erevrav, the mixed multitude of others, they wanted a, an eye, And that's why they were killed. But according to their level, according to the level of the Jewish people had just forty days before heard the the, the revelation of Sinai, having gone forty days and having witnessed the, the crossing of the, of the sea, for them to fall into even even wanting a substitute for Moses and inventing it for them on their level, described from the point of view of the Torah, that could be called idolatry. Avodas Zara. Let um, me explain. Avodas strictly means strange service. Strange service. It means service that's not appropriate. Usually, it means service of something that's not appropriate. It refers usually to idolatry. It's service, the kind of service that's really relevant to God, and it's addressed to something else. Here, it's creating a link with God that you weren't commanded to do. You created it on your own. So, you are using an item to focus your service, service of God, for sure, not, not service of other items. But, it's a wrong item. It's a wrong link. On their level, that could be called a rosary. Not in strict legal terms, but describing the failure vis-à-vis what could be expected of them that's called a our from this you have an explanation of what Chazal say when you have the mis the people who complain and the Torah says, by yeah, Iyam Literally means it, the people were as complainers. The their complaint, and the courts the punish. Why well, say it was as their complaint? complaining? So Chazal say, "Me mayhem to The Jewish people coming out of Egypt never committed a complete. Crime? Well, the macadur, they didn't get a complete person. Now, he's going to apply this to a statement which is very widely quoted and often misunderstood. As I'll say, anyone who says that Ruben sinned, the children of Eli sinned, who comes with these stories in the the children of Shmuel sinned, David sinned, Solomon sinned, is making a mistake. Anyone who says that these people sinned is making a mistake. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not a whitewash. This is not a whitewash. After all, the Tanakh describes their failures. It describes their sin. It describes the punishment they got for their sin. It can't mean they didn't sin. So many people will quote this way and will tell you, you see, if you think they sinned, you're wrong. You're not pious enough to understand that they didn't sin. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Especially those who got punished for it. And they didn't sin and they got punished? No. This is what Bethesda uh, says. It means someone who tells you that they sinned according to the speaker's evaluation of what a sin is, he's making a mistake. If he applies his own standards to them and describes what they did as a sin, then he's making Is that they didn't sin? But the sin is described in the language of the Tanakh from the point of view of the Tanakh for the level of evaluation of the Tanakh as applied to very great people. And in that respect, you have to know how to read what the words say. And not take them as if they were describing next door a next-door neighbor written in the New York Times. The words don't have the same meaning under those conditions. And that's why you very often find that when the Tanakh describes a crime, and Chazal I'll say, it didn't happen the way you think it can't take the word as if they're written about you next to a neighbor. That's understanding. Who's writing it and who's being written about? And they give you another description and you say, oh my goodness gracious, that's not what the words say, and uh, it looks like the church trying to whitewash. It's neither of those things. It's understanding the source of the the statement and, and the object to which it's applied. Take for example Reuben. What does the Torah say? Reuben, the Torah says that Reuben had relations with his father's Pilate, his father's kind. What does Kazal say? Anybody who says that he had relations, which is a kind of pseudo-adultery, I mean these women were taken by Yaakov as to wife, sort of. This is on. Un- on the borderline of, of, of adultery. If it's not real adultery. No, say that's not what happened. What happened was that Rubin sought to protect the honor of his mother. What happened? What really happened was this. Yaakov had two wives, Ruffel and Leah. He preferred Ruffel. he wanted to marry Ruffel. Leah was uh, inserted only to substitute. Then uh, Rachel didn't have children, so he took, uh, she said he should take her handmaid to wife. Leah not having children, she said, take her handmaid to wife. So I ended up that Dak was living with Rachel. But his main residence was Rachel, because Rachel was the one who he was committed to. Rachel died. Now what? Now he put his main residence together with Rachel's maid. At this point, Ruchel, who who's Leia's firstborn, said, all, and long as Rachel was alive, I understand. I understand history. I understand you preferred Rahul. That's enough. But now, you're going to take up with the maidservant instead of my mother, who's the sister? That's not right. That's not right. So what happened when Yankov was out in the field? Ruben took his father's furniture, his father's accoutrements, and moved them from the maidservant's tent. The a step. That's what he did. That's what I thought.
1: That's going stop That's going to stop
0: his father. It is a public demonstration of the feeling of the firstborn of Leah that what he's doing is wrong. Will it stop it? No, you no. Know, but you don't have to be guaranteed that something will work in order to do it. Surgery isn't guaranteed either. people don't do it. That's what he did. So now, how could the Torah say that he? had relations with this woman, but what he did was move the furniture around. The answer is this. Ruvain is taking a stand against his father's marital relations. Against his father's marital policy. Okay, he's doing it by moving furniture around, but he's interfering with his father's marital relations. For someone, on Ruvain's level, how can we describe the seriousness of the crime? Indeed, had the Torah written what I just told you, had the Torah written what the oral tradition preserved, you wouldn't have known it was a crime at all. In fact, I must tell you, I'm very sympathetic to it. (laughs) I don't understand why Yaakov did what he did, and it was my mother. I think, you know, how come he's slimy my mother like that? You know, it's not right. We are so gross, we're so low, we're so insensitive, that we wouldn't regard what he did as a crime at all. We think it was perfectly all right. It's the time to communicate to us. Ruben committed a terrible obligation That He committed a terrible crime. How is the Torah going to communicate to us what the, how, the seriousness of the crime? It's going to speak to us in language we which we understand and which really applies to him. Once you understand who he is, once you understand the standard up to which he's held, it's like Rav Safra's description that, making up my mind, in my heart to do something and not carrying it out, is... Um, And, uh, uh, the kind of theft. Right? The case was someone came in and asked him to buy something and he couldn't interrupt and the guy kept raising the price and then when, when he could uh, speak to them, he said I'll oh, Sell it to you for the first price. And the other guy said, what do you mean? I, I already showed you I was willing to pay a higher price. He said, not. When you said the first price, I already made it my mind to sell it to you. So I can't take the higher price even though he's willing to give it because that would be that. No businessman can play the like this. Came when I was on the telephone. Didn't know what was tell you. I said, $100? $200? $500? Let me buy $500. $500 sell me the thing. He said, I'm only taking $100 because when you first said $100, I was already agreeing. Right? No one would do that. In fact, they rank you
1: after you do that. You can say, hey, stupid. You can
0: work on job. not for us. Huh? is an average, regular person expected to have? It. No, I don't think so. It's not, uh, in fact, it's very interesting. When Chazal described the great, outstanding actions of great people, see, it's precisely because people, ordinary people aren't expect, expected to do that. I think people are called great, when they do it. That's a view that they make all the time. But it's something to strive for, it's something to try to, it uh, qualifies in the spirit. So over here, when the Torah says that he committed adultery, you have to understand that on this level, what he did was equivalent to committing adultery. So that in terms of the Torah's expectations for him, these words are appropriate because they're being applied to him. Just like theft in Rosafra's mouth, theft would, recu- would, would, would apply to a person who changed his mind didn't tell anybody he changed his mind. And so it's not again, it's not figurative use of the language. It's that in this context, taking into account the speaker and the one being described, um, it is a uh, it, it's a literal use of the language. Solomon. The Tanakh says that in Solomon's old age he worshipped I. worshipped I. Chazal. nothing like that ever happened what happened was this he had lots of wives he married the daughters of foreign kings in order to cement alliances with them and in order to spread his influence his wisdom when he brought them to Jerusalem his wives he talked to the Torah, he talked about how to live as Jews and they complied when he got old he supervised so then they went back, some of them went back to their old ways, and they uh, practiced idol worship in because he didn't control them, or because he married them in the first place. When they worshipped idols, it's accounted to him as if he worshipped them. Now, usually we say, this is everybody's living his own life, everybody's making his own decisions. If you commit a crime, it's not my fault, why would I, why would I be described as committing your crime? Because you're not selling them. You're talking about the king. And the king was wiser than all men who, who ever existed. If he didn't if he didn't um, take care to prevent this then it's going to be described that way because the sin in his case is equivalent to worshipping idols. So the way to describe it in the language that we have is worshipping high. That for him is worshipping high. Not that he could be tried in court and punished for it as an idol worshiper. Just like Wasapra could not be, if he had uh, taken the higher price, couldn't be tried in court as a as a thief. But he's saying that morally, morally, in the case of this person, it's equivalent to that. Now, next time, in Sham, I'm going to broaden the the discussion. The truth is that in every one of the cases that the Tzaddi mentions, there is evidence. In the written Hanak, also, that the low reading the women committed adultery, that Solomon worshipped idols, that the low reading is not correct. It's not just that. Because we understand the standards of the Torah, and the standards of these great people, that we understand on general grounds, it shouldn't be right to think of them as committing the low crime. But understand that it's a description that the Torah is making for the particular application of these people. It's not just that. That itself is an important observation. But there's evidence within the verses themselves that taking it in the low meaning, as if it would be applied to your next door neighbor, is not correct. So that you have more than just a general philosophical position that these great people wouldn't commit these kinds of crimes and the Torah writes on a high level this one has to prove to us he proved to us with the examples that the Torah writes on a high level it's not just that but there are other verses in each of the cases which indicate that you can't take it on the, the low level alone uh, and, and that means that his case is backed up even by what's in the explicit text itself not just on, on the basis of this philosophical observation to how the text should be understood we'll pick that up next time
2: Okay, this is the second shear in Chateim Shel him the sins of the great, which is um, February twenty fifth.
0: Today, we need you to the professor's main idea, which is that when you read a critique, a statement of crime, you have to know who's speaking and who's speaking about. Otherwise, you can't tell what the statement means. And the Tanakh scripture, when it describes crimes, does so with a very um, subtle and and say in English. It applies to tiny details, details that we might regard as insignificant, but certainly not as um, gross crimes. And the Tanakh inscribed them as gross crimes because its standard is very high. And the people to whom the standard is applied would have been expected to live up to such a high standard. And he has two proofs of this. Proofs of this from the written Tanakh itself. One is the case of Achan, where there was a ban, a ban on the spoils of Jericho, and only one person violated the ban and the Tanakh describes it as if the whole of the Jewish people violated it. It says, Israel, the Jewish people, and the verbs are all plural, which would mean either everyone, or a majority, or at the very least a very sizable minority, and in fact it was only one man. Why? Because the Torah is describing the Tanakh there, describing the failure of social standards against crime, which would have made it psychologically impossible for a person to fail, and even though the nation as a whole was guilty of its psychological and social standards against crime, they're painted with the same brush, but they stole and cheated and they lied, because their standard, their, their standard is such that, just this failure of social and psychological um, rejection of crime earns them the description of having participated in the crime as well. The <coughs> same is true with the golden cat. The verse describes the people as a whole, literal, simple, shot in the words, describes the people as a whole as being guilty of worshipping the idols. Worshiping the calf as an idol, which of course wasn't the case, receives no sort of at the end. The tiny, tiny minority, everybody else is guilty of a much lesser crime. Doesn't matter. It's tied to the same right? So he says when you read the descriptions of other crimes, you have to know that it's being used in that way, that kind of standard. <coughs> And not to read it, not to read it as if it were a literal description of a lesser person by the New York Times, where it would simply be taken literally. And he gives two examples. When the Gemara says, anybody who says that (coughs) Ruben sinned, he's making a mistake. It's very important to understand what he means. He's not saying that Rubain didn't sin. It's clear that Rubain sinned. He paid for it. But if anybody reads the literal words and says that they apply to Rubain the way you would take them in a normal context for an ordinary <coughs> person, in another text, not in the Tanakh, that person's making a mistake, That the reader, the naive reader, will not understand what the sin was. That's what it says when it means that when it says that he's making a mistake. Not <clears throat> only really did not sin, but the naive reader will misunderstand what the sin was. The, the, the Torah says that he had relations with his father's concubine. Old tradition tells us that's not true. He didn't have relations with his father's concubine. He moved around the furniture to demand his mother's honor. But, from the Torah's viewpoint. And from the standards that are reasonable for Ruben, moving around the furniture, which was his focus against his father's marital relations, can be described for him as if he had relations with the country. Same with Stalin, where the Nazis says that he worshipped idols in his old age. What really happened was he didn't control his wives. But for Solomon, that's um, a as if he had actually worshipped the Adam. Now, I'm going to come to with that <coughs> in a moment. We can cite that as well. But I want to add a factor here, which is very important. That if you look in the written text itself, reading it naively, as if it were a simple descriptive crime, it's also nice. It's not just, even though I'm going to tell you, it would have been enough, it's not just that the, the standards are much higher and the people are in a higher, much higher standard and therefore the words apply in a different sense than what they normally apply. It's not just that. Also, in addition to that reason, there's another reason. That if you took it naïvely as a Bold description of the crime, then the written text itself doesn't it doesn't read well. It doesn't read consistently. <clears throat> I'll tell you why Let's take woman If I took it naively that he really had relations with his father's concubine, okay, it says in the verse. But as a matter of fact, this woman was taken to him to wife, and. She bore two of the twelve tribes. It wasn't casual uh, <coughs> a casual relationship that his father had. Indeed, Jacob wouldn't have had a casual relationship with a woman, any woman. And he took this woman to wife only because <coughs> Rachel demanded it of him. And he gave in to her. And she bore two of the tribes. If Ruben had really done that, What should we have expected as the response? In the the relationships that existed before the Torah was given, what makes a man and a woman, husband and wife? Only that they're living together exclusively. That's all it takes. It doesn't require witnesses, it doesn't require uh, hope and condition. If a man and a woman are living together exclusively, (coughs) That makes them husband and wife. So according to non-Jewish law, there's no question that they were husband and wife. If Ruben had relations with this woman, (coughs) he would have to be killed. He would have to be killed. Now the Torah says explicitly that that Jacob found out what Ruben did. What happened as a result? Nothing. Zero. For years and years, nothing happened. So, if you really thought that it was literal, you'd have <laughs> to check puzzle. How is it that Rouven, so to speak, got away with it? <clears throat> what about punishing him? Now, it's true. He did get punished. When did he get punished? Decades later, when Jacob is dying, and he comes to give a final message to each of his children, including a, a blessing and a prediction for the future. These blessings are prophecies. What's going to be their position in the future? And Jacob says to Reuben, you're my firstborn. You should have been the source of the kings, and you should have been the source of the priests, although that belongs to the firstborn. But you made this mistake, so you lost it. He lost it all. Historically, it's a gigantic loss. He should have been the leader of the Jewish people in all respects. And he lost all of it because of this incident. Okay, that is a gigantic loss. But, if it were the crime as it's described in the Torah and read naively, that's not nearly enough that your descendants hundreds of years from now won't have this distinction but will have that position, he should have been killed on the spot. So reading it naively, as if he really had relations with this woman, creates problems. Creates problems in the written text. So that when Kazan tells us that something else entirely different happened, it's justified because Ravesta says The standards that the Tanakh uses to describe crimes are much higher standards than than we normally employ. But even the written text alone is hard to read, literally, because of of, of the fact that there was no reaction to it. The same is true with King Solomon. At the end of each king's life, the Tanakh sums up his life. He lived over the years, he died. He did what was right in the eyes of God. He did what was right, but he didn't remove the private altars, which were against the law, and he should have done that. He was an evil king, and he was killed because of the terrible crimes. The king's life is summed <clears throat> up. In the summary of Solomon's life, no mention is made of this crime of worship again. It just doesn't fit the style of the Tanakh. The style of the Tanakh is the sum of his life, and to mention the outstanding elements in his life. Idol worship for someone like Solomon would have been a very outstanding element. And it's just passed over in silence. So saying that he really worshiped idols is peculiar. And the written text itself. You take the peculiarity in the written text itself, and you take what Odessa tells us about the standards that they have for writing and for describing crimes, which is justified in the written text itself. then it seems to me what Chazal is telling us here is not far into the written text. The written text needs something like that. Now, I don't know a way of, of drawing the particular description that Chazal makes out of the written text. That I don't know how to do. To say that we really had relations with this woman is very difficult. To say that he moved around the furniture in order to protest his mother's honor that I don't know how to get out of the words in the text. But something needs to be done, and what does this to us the basis on which the oral tradition preserves the truth. It's not that the oral tradition we invented, of course, something that goes all the way back. But it's not a foreign element in contradiction to the written text. It's the written text demands something like this, and therefore in the written text itself there's room for, there's a kind of invitation for this element of the of the oral tradition. Now, the last example that he brings is the case of King David. And because that's in certain ways the most difficult case and because it can cause a lever because of the irresponsible, very popular literature, that's probably the best. <coughs> literature is popular because it's irresponsible. Um, I want to go through it in a little bit more detail. Uh, that's what bring to What does the naively read Tanakh say? It says King David was on the roof of his palace, and he saw a beautiful woman, and he inquired as to who she was, and he had her go up to the palace, and he relationship with her. Now, her husband was in fact a, a soldier in the army, which was at, at that time in ba- engaged in battle, <coughs> The husband comes home with a message for the king, David, and David says to him, um, well, he came home from the battle, you're not going back till tomorrow, go home, and the uh, soldier says, would it be hope for me to go home when all the other soldiers are out there at the battle are facing danger? The next day, when he goes back to his unit, King David says, "I I have a letter for your commander. And in the letter, King David writes to the commander, Next time you're in battle, I want you to give a secret signal for retreat to all the soldiers in your unit, except for this one who was bearing this letter. Don't give him the, 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 the signal for retreat so that when he retreats, he'll be killed in battle. Everybody else will retreat and he won't retreat, he'll be exposed and will be killed. Which is exactly what happens.
1: Very nice. I'm
0: glad that your moral sense is not sleeping. I'm glad <laughs> that you're awake and morally alert. Yeah. And that's what happens. After which... King David takes this woman, Bathsheba, and she becomes his wife.
1: Did her husband know when he came home that this was going on or not? No, there was no way. So she <laughs> was with him then? Perfect. So she was with him then? With her husband? With the real no, wife?
2: King David told her
0: husband to go home to his wife, and he refused.
1: King David he came David into the city and he told him go home to your wife and he refused and he said why did he come home to the town in the first because case? he had
0: a message to take to the king this commander was sending a message to the king with, with, this, with this soldier that was uh, the king told him to send him a message or ha- just how it happened no it happened, that happened, happened, happened. Uh, now <clears throat> when you read this here's how it looks it looks like king David had adultery with this woman she was a married woman and then he got rid of the, key of the husband by sending him out to the battle with this trick that everyone else will retreat and he won't retreat and he will He was killed. So he got, rid of the, he got rid of the husband and then takes the wife, officially, to be his wife. Well, there are some difficulties with this naive reading of the story. <laughs> difficulties in the text, and difficulties with Jewish law. First of all, after this incident, Nathan the prophet comes to King David to condemn him for what he's done. He uh, one second, Let's listen, to, listen to the facts. Before we start analyzing and, and questioning, listen to the facts. Get the facts straight. Basically. So now, um, Nathan comes to King David and says, I want you to judge a case that took place. There was a rich man who had great plots. There was a poor man who had only one sheep. And that sheep was very good to <coughs> him. And the rich man stole the sheep from him. What should be the judgment on the rich man? He David says, you should die.
2: <coughs> and
0: David says to him, that's you. That's what you did. Meaning, David has many wives. This soldier had only one wife. And you engineered to take the, take his wife. Many David, wives says, he can out. David says, David says, David says, I've sinned to God. I've sinned to God. And Nathan says, since you have admitted your sin, you won't die. Your glance,
2: sir. Yes, sir. It's a
0: well, it's a little odd that David admits <laughs> his crime by saying, I've sinned to God. What about killing the guy? And what about taking his wife? Isn't that sinning against the person also? Okay, it's a little odd. Indeed, in Psalms, where this is repeated, King David says, I've sinned only to God. To you alone have I sinned. Secondly, he takes this woman to wife. Now it's true, the child who's born as a result of that (coughs) first Relations. Before the husband dies. That child dies. But he keeps her as a wife. And guess what? The next child is named Solomon. He's King Solomon. And she remains his wife until she dies. Until he dies, actually. Until King David dies. And she's the mother of Solomon? who then becomes the mind of the Messiah. Now, we have a rule in Jewish law. If a woman commits adultery, she's forbidden to her husband, willingly; she's forbidden to husband, and she's forbidden to the adulterer. Forever. Nevertheless, David keeps her. Not only does he keep her, but out of that relationship, comes Solomon, who then is the line of the Messiah. So, something peculiar is going on here. If this first relationship that he had with her was really adultery, then he could not continue to have relations with her. And it's unthinkable that he would continue to have relations with her against the law, and that relationship, which is against the law, would produce Solomon, which would then be the line of the Messiah. It so even in the written text something peculiar is going on also at the end of david's life no mention is made of this crime there's something peculiar is going on now here's what the oral, oral tradition says when people went out <coughs> to do battle they if they were married they divorced their wives why because war is a nasty, dirty business, and when people die in war, not always are there witnesses to testify that they die. Sometimes they're taken prisoner by the enemy. mother Israel knows about that very well, and their fate is totally unknown. Nobody knows what happened to them. They can be taken prisoner by the enemy and disappear, and no one knows what happened to them. The enemy can kill them and hide them. Who knows? This guy is a common soldier. So, the standard procedure was that you um, divorce your wife, and when you come home, you remarry her. We're not talking about a cohen here. This can go on any number of times. (laughs) No problem with it. Now, it says when King, King David saw her from the rooftop, he inquired as to who she was. Why did he bother to inquire? If you're talking about an autocrat, who uses his power one wanton, doesn't care about adultery, and uh, but there was an who she is. Take her, because you want her. No, he inquires who she was. What did he find out? He found out that this is a wife one of the soldiers, which means she's not married now. She's not married. So, he says, and it doesn't say that he raped her, it doesn't say that he forced her, He's never criticized for that, not in the written, not in the oral. She's an unmarried woman, and he proposes a relationship with her. And she agrees. And she comes pregnant. Okay, now, it's legal, but it doesn't look right. It doesn't look right. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know... For King David. The commentaries in the Tanakh say that he was overcome with desire and he wanted her. Okay? It can happen to somebody. It can happen to anybody. Even King David. But, <coughs> not a argument. So he sends to find out who she is. She's not married. Okay, she's not married and he wants her. He proposes to her and she agrees. But it doesn't look right. Now, the husband comes home. The husband comes home and disobeys a direct order from the king. In Jewish law, you can't do that. You have been growing up in, 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 uh, in democracies where, you know, and who's he? The president? So what? You know, in four years, he's going to be a bum on the street. Okay, he'll make money lecture, you know, because he was once president. And we chew up our president and spit them out. In Jewish law, you can't do that to the king. Disobey an order the king is A death penalty. According to standard Jewish law. The death penalty. He disobeyed a direct order from the king. Furthermore, when he disobeys, he refers to the general in the field as Adomi, my master. When you're speaking to the king, you don't refer to somebody else as your master. Also inappropriate. (laughs) Therefore, King David had a right according to law to execute him. But to execute a guy according to law, strict law, and to take his wife, former wife, widow, doesn't look right. <coughs> it just doesn't look right. He David is operating within the strict law and also worried about the appearances. You know, in American law, I have to, have to close. In American law, with the judges, maybe other uh, um, officials as well, but I heard of the judges they say a judge must avoid the appearance of impropriety. It's not enough that everything he does should be proper. He has to avoid the appearance of impropriety. If you can't trust justice, then the whole system breaks down. So here King David is saying, what I'm doing is strictly legal, but I have to avoid the appearance of impropriety. Now, how does he avoid it? He gives this guy a letter. This guy, the next day after the first day, this guy has just disobeyed a direct order of the king. Now he gives him a letter. This I'm telling you. One of the Achronim points this out. I read this only a couple years ago. I was really impressed did and think of it myself. He um, he gives him a letter. He says, "Listen, don't read this letter. This is a letter for your commander. I'm telling you, don't read it." Who's telling him? King David is telling him. Same King David who yesterday told him to go home to his wife, and he said, "No, I'm not doing that." Okay, so what does King David expect? King David expects, this guy already rebelled against me once. He obviously doesn't accept my authority. I'm telling him not to read the letter. He'll read the letter. When he reads the letter, what is he going to do? He's not stupid. He'll run for it. He sees that the king has set up a procedure whereby he's going to be killed in battle. He'll run. King David isn't trying to kill him. He's just trying to get rid of him. He's going back, he thinks, to the, to the battle. When he may therefore He divorced his wife. He divorced his wife. In fact, he didn't go home to her, so he didn't be her at all. So she remains divorced. And he'll just disappear, which is fine with him. It's fine with King David. He'll disappear. King David could have killed him directly. He didn't kill him. He arranged that he should disappear. The woman is not married, wasn't married when he had first relations with her, and she's available to be taken to be his wife. According to the strict law, nothing's gone wrong. But, but King David used the strict law that way to enable himself to have this benefit is really wrong. It's really wrong for David. And that's why Nathan comes and says to him, which it is, was terrible. In terms of who you are, and in terms of how it appears, I accuse you of stealing another man's wife. David says, I'm guilty. Two am my guilty whom have I sinned? Only to God. I didn't do anything wrong to to, uh, to the soldier. I didn't take his wife. I didn't commit adultery with him. I didn't uh, uh, kill an innocent person. None of that is true, but I sinned to God. You're right. I shouldn't have done it because of the standards that apply to me in terms of who I am. And Nathan says to him, because you've admitted it, you won't die. As you yourself said, the person who did this should die. You won't die, but you're going to pay for it. You got a paper. You know how a paper? The Rebellion of Akshom. His oldest son. And gave the blood. The Rebellion of Akshom was the, the, the punishment for this. Now, there is a, a sefer written by Rambam's son, Abdi the Dara called I Must Speak Hashem. It's a sefer of Muslim. how to develop appropriate character for it? He has, I read the section on trust in God and endeavor. He has such a section, 25-page section. When I was preparing sources on trust and endeavor many years ago, I went through basically all that we and shown. on the subject. And in there, he says, <laughs> if you look at the rebellion of Asholim, and you look at King David's reaction, you will see that King David is almost totally passive. Avshalom raises an army and creates a civil war. What does David do? Run. He runs. He instructs his soldiers: don't engage in a battle; just run. He crosses the Jordan and he goes out into the desert, and he's starving. He and his soldiers are starving so much so that foreign kings, with whom David had friendly relations, had to send them food. At that point, David says, "We will stand here and fight a defensive battle." We'll defend ourselves. That's all. And he tells his soldiers, don't harm Akshalom. Don't harm him. He's the pur- Now, the general says to himself, David, make a terrible mistake. This man has created a civil war. You don't allow the creator of a civil war to live. If you do, you'll never have peace in your kingdom. Your kingdom will never be established. So again, King David explicitly orders, the general king kills Akshalom, and David goes into a paroxysm of grief, terribly grief, that his son has died. And that's where the title for that stupid book, you know, the novel comes from. I shall, I shall. But at any rate, what you see here is that King David admitted his guilt to a prophet, and the words are, I've only sinned to God, to no one else, and the prophet accepts it, and he pays for it. And he became as wife, and he, and Solomon was born for that union. This is the background of what the oral tradition tells us, that it was not adultery, and it was not even indirect murder. Everything David did was within the strict r- limits of the law, and, as I pointed out to you, the written version, if you read the written version, as everyone does, in the world, the whole Christian world, the whole Muslim world, and the author of that book, and so on, read it on the surface, it doesn't read well. It doesn't read well. Because it doesn't make sense in terms of the way he expresses himself, and it doesn't make sense in terms of the Jewish law. And with the Old Tradition, the, the the text can be read, but you can't read it naively. You can't read it naively. And simplistically have to be with attention to detail. By the way, the oral tradition also says he saw her from the roof. Now how he's on the roof of the palace. How did he see her and become impressed by her beauty? She was bathing. On her roof, in her midst, and he caught sight of her, not fully closed. She's on her roof. Her roof is protected, except from a much higher structure that could see down. She didn't expect that someone would be strolling on the king's roof and looking down, and it was evening. It means he knew she wasn't even in need. She wasn't even forbidden according to the laws of of, of need. That's how much he knew. But, for someone like he did, it was a totally inappropriate act, and the Tanakh describes it in straightforward literal terms because, on his level, and from the point of view of the Tanakh's way of describing crime, that's the language that was used. Someone's hands over himself. No? I do not. Was, uh, um, when he first had relations with Brad Shogar, did he know what
1: what did he think about him? Was
0: he aware of the husband at the time? Yes, but he says it says that Tanakh says he sent it to he sent to inquire who she was. That's how he knew that her husband was a soldier, <laughs> and therefore he knew that she wasn't married. Wasn't married because every soldier, when he went to battle, or divorced
1: their wives. Is assumed, but the, is assumed unmarried
0: until he returns. Assumed. So, I mean, this was the standard. No, was, not assumed. She's unmarried when he went to battle. He divorced his wife, so that. Were you to go missing in battle, your wife would remain in that good, she wouldn't remain in doubtful status. Oh, before you, before you leave for battle? Before you leave for battle, you give not like when the battle results? No! First of all, you're going to battle. There's more going on. You're a soldier. You know where you're going. You're going to battle. Yeah, I wouldn't
1: feel
0: would too good as a soldier knowing,
1: knowing that I, I could come back and in the interim. Something like that might happen.
0: You, If you loved your wife and she loves you, if you're worse knowing... That you could die in battle without testimony, and she remain uh, chained uh, to to you for the rest of her life, and never be able to remember.
1: And David could have. David could. And I mean, I wonder if David had in his mind that you know he might actually you know the the, the, the actual that the, this divorce is is a, just is a like a, a, a temporary type of thing. He
0: knows, of course. He knows it's, ever, and it's, so, it's and temporary. And so he
1: knows when when she. And so he knows that it's on a dowry. Mm-hmm. if he does come back, he's aware of that. It's like using a loophole.
0: Correct, he's using a loophole. He's using a loophole. But a loophole is a loophole. It's a genuine legal loophole. And therefore, it's, it, it's only that for a person in his, in his position, it's not appropriate to, lose, to use loopholes in that way. Yeah? Okay, a couple of things. Number one, why was she going to the for if he wasn't around? Her husband
1: wasn't around. From those
0: times, every, everyone was, it had to be to her. It's only fairly recent in our history that women don't go to the regularly when they're not married. Because they dealt with paddles they dealt with, with consecrated items. When they had food, they had to take off tumors and give it to the kohen. It had to be torah. We were, we were, uh, Women had to be torah all the time, as okay. best they could.
1: Um, I, I mean, I assume it's wrong, but was it true? Like, isn't there such a? Is, is there a concept of giving a get that only like on condition to that long
0: term? Um, you, there is such a possibility, and but they and they didn't do that. saying a get, they just didn't do that. Then it's a question, did he return? Did he return? What kind of evidence do you? How long do you have to wait? It becomes very complicated. The point was that the woman should be should be clear. Okay. What was what was
1: Bathsheba thinking when she had relations with with King
2: David? Well, her husband well, wasn't the nicest guy in the first place.
0: Another mean? I mean was, okay, well, that's not relevant to our issue. Our issue is did David sin? Didn't he sin? What was yeah, what in the sense of. Right? I mean, there's any, any 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 number of questions you can ask, but I'm I'm just interested now in David's position and the description of it. That's what's relevant. into his, his essay. Yeah. On yeah. What was he think
1: what, when he told him to go back that he can go back to his wife? He was really then ready to
0: completely just give up on him. give up on her, and right. when even though she was pregnant at the time. So that was the idea. Was, he didn't know because it was it was, it was very shortly after, but he should be pregnant, and he goes off to his wife. So then it's as if. Then it could be attributed to him, to the husband, not to David. Okay. And why would
1: okay? But then it's not relevant to the question. But <coughs> that, that, that
0: was basically, my question. But he would, he would have been okay. He was trying to get, like you said, if, the, if there was going to be a baby come out of this, they would say, well, it must have been him because he was. Okay. David would have been okay with that. He would have been okay with uh, with uh, maybe his child is maybe the heir to the. Is. Okay, I, I, don't know. I, don't, beyond that, I don't know. Beyond that, I don't know. The point was, he did something which was legally okay and inappropriate, and therefore he wanted to cover it up. And uh, think, uh, since, he, since uh, the husband didn't go home, it Yeah.
1: According to what you're saying, the fact that the matter is that since he disobeyed King David's orders about returning, you would therefore open up the letter.
0: That was his. Uh, that was his assumption. I does yeah. doesn't, doesn't, doesn't obey me anyhow. There's something called soldiers' honor in 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 in, Brit- in the British army. Three thousand years later, you're going to read that back into David. I mean, what kind of there's cultural? Th- events? that's an anachronism of, of great uh, of great proportions. You're reading modern cultural uh, 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 values back into a, into a biblical square from three thousand years ago.
1: There's, there's a concept of, of that I'm with my, I mean, why why can't we say that it was relevant then also?
0: You don't ask a question on, on the basis of an assumption. You only ask a question on, on the basis of a fact. So many, why can't I say it's relevant? No, there's, because there's,
1: the, the situation... There's something low with reading someone's private letter.
0: Whereas there's nothing wrong with disobeying a direct order from the king. He obviously didn't care. But you're not, you're not, you're not, sneak, you're not being a sneak by doing it. In our, in our, uh, in our uh, morals, armed robbery is less reprehensible than theft. The, 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 person who, the person who's willing to do it in public and says, I don't care about you, and I don't care about God. I don't care about anybody. Right? You can't have a criminal worse than that.
2: You just stood uh,
0: I spit in your face. You're the king? I'm told, you told me to do something? I said, no. No? Hmm? So. Anyway. Alright, we're, we're, we're all set.
1: Maybe um, David was afraid, not afraid, but he thought he realised that by by this, this guy disobeying the first order, that he might, um, you know, if he would ever find out what happened to David, you know, what, what, what David did, he may be a threat to David's uh, kingship because you know he has he has the I'll say the guts to not abandon his men. So this I mean,
0: is not the commander now. This is a, a plain soldier, not abandoning his men. I'm just talking about. He's giving a, a, a letter to the commander. He's not the commander. He's, not the he's, he's one of the soldiers. And the letter to the commander says, give yeah. a sign of to, to, retreat to your men, and not to this one, so that when in the next battle you give the sign to retreat, everyone will know to retreat except him, and you'll be killed. Yeah,
1: the first thing he did was not, refuse refused to stay home because he knew that his, his fellow soldiers were out there fighting. He said, Dave, I'm, not going, I'm going to battle.
0: No! He said, go <laughs> home tonight! yeah. And he said, I'm not going home tonight. Tomorrow he's going back to the battle anyway. He didn't stay home oh, extra time. What's the question of uh, staying home extra time or not staying home extra time? Okay, <laughs> we're, we're getting off the, the fact. Here. Now, um, Rodesta then says there's another element in the story which has to be understood. Um, says it's another element in the story Um, we actually assume that when people make progress spiritual progress they graduate from one level to the next Uh, I've mentioned to many of you a number of times the example of a child who steals and then he grows up and he fights that battle and he wins that battle and he doesn't from department stores and from candy stores and from the train station and from the moose stand, he just doesn't do that. He's outgrown that. Now it's true, as you grow to higher levels, then there are um, there are other challenges. About uh, Tshuva B- B- goes through a period of time when David Milcha is very difficult. Comes in the middle of the afternoon, it's really a pain in that he interrupts everything. And he have to struggle to do it. After a while, temptation, not not a minute, it just disappears okay, then the problem is, shall I pay attention to every word can I focus my attention that way it's a different challenge, every every position in life has challenges, but different challenges and we naturally assume that one outgrows certain types of challenges you see King David in a situation like this, where the temptation is the temptation of sexual desire which leads him to do something which is very questionable, even though not strictly speaking, illegal. Um, so, we, we uh, it, it seems peculiar. Why don't, shouldn't we assume that David outgrew this particular type of challenge? Even if he had it at any time in his life, we should assume that he outgrew it. Now, this says said that later on in the essay, he will address this question. I will just tell you what, what at least the principle, of i say this. About two incidents in Jewish history. One was King David and the other was a Golden Cat. That indeed, the people involved in these two incidents had outgrown that type of temptation. And God artificially restored them to a lower level of spirituality so (laughs) they would face a temptation and be capable of failure. Which was not according to the position that they were really in spiritually. And I'll say that both of these incidents were engineered by God so as to teach people that Shuba is always possible, that repentance is always possible. And one involved an individual, and one involved the whole of the Jewish people, so that the people as a whole would know it, and the people, even a great crime, a crime according to their level but a crime that they should have been, I should have all together, a crime that could be regarded as a serious crime, that Chuma helps, that that Chuma uh, can repair it. Um, so they were artificially lowered to a position where they had to fight this battle. Otherwise the battle would have been completely different. Even when you understand, as I have told you, in some of you, that in the case of the Golden Calf, it was a replacement for Moses, but even that, even that, a mere forty days after hearing God at Sinai and witnessing the whole revelation with all of the attendant circumstances, to have made even that kind of mistake wasn't a mistake that was appropriate to their spiritual level. God artificially lowered them <coughs> so that we fight that battle and be capable of losing, so that the, the possibility <laughs> of would be, would be um, made available. Vivid and clear and the precedent for, 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 for the for people as a whole and for the
2: individual.
1: What yeah. was <coughs> the lesson we're trying to learn out uh, sort of the Afshan story? The fact that he was.
0: He, um, he, that Dougie was upset that he was. Dougie knew that he was being punished for this, this transgression and therefore his <laughs> attitude towards it was I, I'm being punished, so therefore I can't take any measures to protect myself. If he thought of this simply as a rebellion, there were other rebellions. David wasn't shy, and he wasn't passive, and he wasn't lazy. And if there were other rebellions, he, he took measures to to, uh, to fight them and take care of them. He took them the right. water. Here, this is what Abba Barama points out, here he <coughs> David is uncharacteristically totally passive. He just runs. Now he obviously had the ability to defend himself because in the end he won the battle and defeated the other army and, uh, and his son was killed. Right? So it wasn't as if he didn't have power to defend himself. He had the power and he ran anyway. So he was upset when Asholim was killed because now he be lost No, I don't say that. I don't know why. I, I don't I don't, I don't I didn't look this up. This I how many people know. Why he was upset? Why he was so careful? Why, why did Asholim whether well, it was because he loved him. or because... <coughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I just know I just know that he told everyone that he doesn't want to something killed and the general film is very upset with well, you say you don't know if it was love or, or what, what's the other thing I don't know the, the general's attitude was if someone leads rebellion against you you will never be settled in your kingdom until you um, until you have done away with him. He will always be, source, be a source, magnet for other people who are discontent. Right. He may have had a different strategy, that uh, if you win him over to your side, if you can show him mercy and win him over to your side, that's better than, than killing him. The general said, uh, he may pretend to love you, he may pretend to accept your mercy, but he will always, always be a magnet for discontent. So he can get a different way of dealing uh, with him. He just went to Dr. Yomi that... Um, why did Esther invite Homan to the to the banquet, first banquet and the second banquet? So there's a variety of of, um, of explanations. One is based on a verse initially, which says you have an enemy, feed him when he's hungry and give him to drink when he's thirsty, you should treat him with kindness, that's how you should treat your enemies. That's a verse in, in Proverbs. So uh, you know that could have been David's strategy. That's how you deal with your enemies, you know, the, when they're no longer when they're no longer a threat. And they're no longer a threat. And David said, we're well, going to fight a defensive battle. And we're, you know, and he has a question that he would win the battle. What to do with the ringleader? What to do with the instigator? It could be thought this punishment will be finished? Or, no. or, or as I say, or, there could be any, any number of different reasons why why he said to do that. The general said, you're not being practical. Real politics will, will tell you that if you have a person who leads a rebellion, you of not Don't have them right. Yeah. King David's free will was taken away by that thing of a child according to that? No, it's, it's not that his free will was taken away. On the contrary, <laughs> what we have here is a case of his free will being restored. You take a person who, who stole as a child, and now he's 26 and he's in the, you know, the newsstand and the, and the, the news seller goes back to get something, he can take his newspaper and run. He doesn't have the free will to steal the newspaper. He's trained himself not to do that. It's become habitual as part of his character. He's not weighing up conflicting desires and conquering his desire to steal. It never occurs to him (laughs) to (laughs) steal outside the sphere of his normal, his normal free will to steal. The old level was he only at seventy-two? Is that good or ninety-six? I mean, the point is, he was beyond the position where this was an attractive crime. That was where his spiritual level was. And God reduced him to the point where it became artificially attractive crime, so he would have to fight that battle. Even though, according to where he was, that battle <coughs> was totally warranted. him. Within the the person, the 26 year old, standing in front of the new state, suddenly has an impulse, a wild desire, steal a newspaper and run. How would he think if he had thought that? He's, I'm going crazy. I, I you know, I lived that when I was 14. I'm 26. You know, I have a tweed suit now. I'm on my way to, the, to, to, you know, to the to, to IBM. Stealing. Who's paper? i is crazy crazy. Right? It's that kind of something that's totally out of character for the person at that time in his life and that, and that, and that spiritual level that he's on. And that's what it was. Yeah. I've done something which, in terms of God's standard, was inappropriate. That i admit. But according to the strict the strict law, what I did was not inappropriate. God would not want to do this. I don't have such standards down here. If, I, if Hashem wouldn't want me to do X, and I do it, I'm doing a sin down here. Uh, but you haven't been here from the beginning. Oh, you, you were here the last time. Yes, yes. Remember of Safra. Uh, Safra says if I agreed in my mind to do something and change my mind later, then I'm I'm a thief. Uh, you have standards down here that when a person does that, you're going to catch him in court and say, "I heard you mumbling in your sleep. You said a hundred dollars, now you're asking 500 No, 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 no! You're a thief. We don't have standards like that. It's a standard for Rosh It's not a standard for us.
1: Can
2: you do it to fill in your mind? Do they get credit for it? <laughs> you know, it, it, um okay, this shall be shall be shown in the last sheer Today is the 28th of February. Okay. The last section on this uh, article is called "Seocial Goof: The Shadow of the Body." Vdesla uh, has here a very important idea and a no- uh, quite a number of applications to sections of the Gemara. I hope I'll be able to do a few. Let's just try to go through it with you, if I can. He says, "Every place where light does not enter, there's darkness. But there are places where light enters from the side. There's a body which prevents light from from entering directly. But light comes in from the sides, so it's not totally dark. And that's called." Shade, sail. So there's a big difference between nighttime and shade because, as we know, we're standing in the shade, it's not totally dark, but the light, the light doesn't come in directly. Now, he's going to use the concept of, of shade in a very general sense. Anything that reduces the intensity of the light at all is called, in his terminology, sail. Even clear glass which passes the light through, does not pass it through completely. There is a slight reduction of the light. Uh, Understand, when light goes through glass, it's not that it goes through the spaces between the the atoms. It interacts with the atoms. That's why your your eyeglasses change the focus of the light rays. And that means some of the light is lost, some of the energy is lost, even though when you look at it, you don't see a difference. But if you have a light meter, you would see that there's a difference. There's a slight reduction. And even that is what he wants He wants to include in the concept of sale. So it is in serving a Kodesh Baruch in serving God. The crucial aspect that he wants to stress, as a Baal Muser, in in serving God, is that his heart should reflect the divine light, or should the, it should be penetrated by the divine light. That is to say, his inner reality should reflect his outer presentation. That requires an, a purification of his materiality, which is ziku Homer. It's a term that's used in many places, he says. Which removes the timtum, which we spoke about in the previous section, the blockage of the physical, from his heart. And that means that the light of spirituality can shine through. That's the light coming from a Kodesh Baruch from God. And as Ramchal says in the beginning of his essay on redemption, that God's light shines equally everywhere. However, it reaches depending upon the blockage that it has to overcome. Um, there's a wonderful Evan Ezra on the the 10 pronouncements of Sinai where he says, um, a person who puts blue glass in his windows and then complains that his house has only blue light, has to understand that the light that's hitting the the window panes has the whole spectrum. He's put up blue panes of glass so only blue light gets through. Now he says, even the greatest sadiq, the most righteous person, where in gross terms, there's not a blockage against the truth reaching his heart, still, from the very fact that he's in this world, the lower world, as he puts it, and he has free choice, he has free will, of necessity, there is some sale. There's not a blockage, but there's shade. The light doesn't reach through completely. Because it, the sides, he calls it ra, evil, that requires a whole hour to explain what the word evil means here, but anyway, any rate, the light doesn't completely penetrate his heart, doesn't, doesn't reach it with all intensity. And though effort that the great people in the world had throughout their lives was to purify this result of their materiality step by step going after the narrower and thinner and more subtle elements of this materiality and that's an endless process for anyone who is in this world now he gives a long Sequence of examples of this. Uh, Moses, of whom it is said that he saw in prophecy through an aspeklaria mi'ira. We spoke about this once. There are many explanations. Uh, Aspeklaria can either mean um, mirror or lens. And we took it in this explanation as lens. And meira means it's bright, shining. So much so that his there's no greater than his brightness of his lens, clarity of his lens in this world. Still, the say, Gemara says, Moses never went higher than 10 tvachim, 10 handbreadths actually like 4 inches, 3 in, 3.8 inches, whatever it is. Not higher than 10. Now, 10 t'vachim is the limits of a certain domain. And it means that he never rose 10 t'vachim above the physical. So it means that he was still in the physical domain. Even if the windows of his heart were like pure glass, your glass also has at sale, as we explained. Um, maybe I'll skip to the applications of, to Moses, so that you, so I can I can carry it out with Moses. He has a whole sequence of examples here. Um, I've mentioned this before, and, and he brings it here. Moses standing at the gold at at the at the. Burning bush. Now, at one point, Moses says to God, "If I go to Egypt and tell them that the God of their ancestors appeared to me, they won't believe me." So God says to Moses, "Listen, I'll give you a way to convince them. When you go down," oh, sorry, God says to Moses, "What do you have in your hand? A staff. Throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. Moses runs because he's afraid. God says, grabs the snake. Grab Moses. Grabs it. It becomes a snake again. It becomes a staff again. God says." When you go down, you do that in front of them, they'll be impressed. Put your hand in your garment, take it out, with lepers, put it back in, it's normal again. Do that when you go down, they'll be impressed. And if those two don't succeed, then you'll take water from the Nile, pour it out on the ground, and it'll become blood. And they will definitely respond to those miracles. Says the Ramban, Ramban as asks a kashi here, which is, once he asks it, it's so obvious, and you kick yourself that you didn't think of it yourself. I don't understand, says, says the Ramban, why did god do those first two miracles to moses why did he do them what was moses objection moses objection was when i get down to egypt weeks from now and i say to the jewish people that the god of their ancestors appeared to me they won't believe me the problem is that the jews won't believe when he gets down to egypt so Mo- God should have said to Moses, when you go down to Egypt, you'll throw your staff down and become a snake. When you go down to Egypt, you'll put your hand in your garment and you take it out and it'll become lepers. Why did God do those miracles to Moses at the burning bush? What's the point of doing it there? Well, it wasn't Moses doubt. He's hearing God speak. It's that when I get down to Egypt, the Jews won't accept it. So tell them when you go down. Like he did with the third miracle, where he says you'll go down, you'll take water from the Nile and it'll turn, it'll turn into blood. He didn't do that for Moses in the wilderness. Why do the first two? Says the Ramban, a beautiful observation. Before he comes to his own shot, that that's the motivation for Chazal to say that Moses was being punished. He he slandered the Jewish people, saying they wouldn't believe, and God punished him. A snake is is, is representative of lashon hara, and uh, leprosy is the, is the punishment for, for lashon hara. For, for 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 uh, lashon hara anyway, not, not exactly the same as slander. So Chazal are already ex- emphasizing this question. Now, the Ramban's answer I understand the question. Moses says to God, "When I go down to Egypt and I tell the Jews that the God of their ancestors appeared to me, they won't believe me." So God says, "I'll give you a way to convince them. Three miracles I'll give you to do weeks from now, when you get there, you'll do it for the Jews there and they'll believe. If so, if that's the point of the miracles, that when he gets there weeks from now, right, the Jews believe, why does God do two of them to Moses in the wilderness now, weeks before, when he's all alone and there are no Jews around and he's standing in the burning bush? Moses believes God's talking to him. So why should God do two of those miracles to Moses now here at the bush? Why does not he just say to Moses, when you get down there, this is what will happen. You'll throw your stick down, it'll become a snake, you'll put your hand in, it'll become leprous, Right? Why does he actually do it for them? So Hazal say he did it. Uh, he's being punished. It has nothing to do with his problem of convincing the Jews weeks later. He's being punished for slandering the Jewish people. Okay. Because the, these two items, the snake and leprosy, are associated with lashon hara. Right. So saying to Moses, "You're guilty of lashon and hara," and therefore I'm punishing you. Right. That, okay. Uh, that's I'm just filling in what the Ramban says. But the Ramban's own explanation is different. Ramban's own explanation says, says perhaps, I'm translating it now from the Ramban, which, which Rav Dester quotes here, perhaps, even though God informed him of his own great name, through which the world was created, and through which everything exists, he wanted to show him, he informed him, that's mental, that's conceptual, that's intellectual, that's just mental, he wanted to show him these miracles. Why? So that this concept would be strengthened in Moses' heart. In his heart. Not just in his brain, but in his heart. And to be strengthened in Moses' heart, he's got to see it. God is talking to him. And God informed his mind of the name through which the whole of the world is created and everything exists. Not enough. It's not enough to get to the heart.
1: Is that a form of doubt, though?
2: No. No, it's not a form of doubt at all. Um but to not have it in your heart. That's right. You can know something clearly without any doubt whatsoever and still not have it in your heart. So it's Well, okay, that depends on how you translate "imuna." But uh, I'm I'm saying it in the words. that don't have any problem of translation, don't have any problem of discussion of what the words mean. I make a great effort to speak in the lowest possible language so that there will be very little misunderstanding. (laughs) Your emotions don't follow your knowledge. How many times do you do something which you know is against your own interests, even your own immediate interests? You know it. It's not that you're doubting. Maybe I'll get away with it. Take a shy person who's at a social gathering and won't walk over to another person and stick out his hand and say, hello, I'm so-and-so. Who are you? Whereas he knows it will be good. He knows he'll have a good time. Still, his feet are rooted to the floor because his emotions don't follow what he knows. That's the way we are. That's the kind of creatures we are. The, the, the important thing here is even Moses. Even Moses. His heart is not fully responsible, responsive to what he knows. So, but, but when you have an experience, that's not just knowledge. Experience has an impact on you far more than your knowledge. The smoker goes to the doctor. And the doctor says, your left lung is 50% shot, and if you continue, we're going to have to take it out. If he shows him an x-ray with the black, that has an effect. Why? He's not a doctor. He can't read the x-ray. He just sees the black. He's not getting any more information from the x-ray than he got from the words of the doctor, but it has an effect on him Because the heart is not fully responsive to what the mind knows. Now, for you and me, that's obvious. The shock is that it's even true for Moses. So he says, Bethesda says, even after knowing God's great name, that is to say, knowing his loving kindness, which is open to him, and the goal of all the creation, he knows all of that. And he knows it with the knowledge of a Moses who sees the light, the light from God comes to him through a clear lens. Even so, even so, still, the fact that he's a physical being prevents the light from penetrating the heart perfectly, and therefore he had to have an experience which pushes the light in much more forcefully. Again, there'll be a, a, a lack. But it, it overcomes a great deal of the resistance. That's what Rahman says about Moses. Um, and then he brings another example from Moses. And this is related to this chapter, the chapter of the, the sins of the great. Ugh. I just read this now, I'm preparing it before, before I came into this year. I know this Gemara, everybody knows this Gemara. Rav Dester has a way of penetrating the words to see what goes on. This is really a quote from Israel Salanter. Chazal say, in the war against Midian, um, and uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't fulfill the orders completely. And it says Moses was angry at the, the leaders of the soldiers. And he made a statement. And Chazal say, listen to the words. Because Moses came, kas, he came to the category, the general category of anger, he made a mistake. Because in his words there, he made a mistake. So Solanta says, don't we know, don't we have a rule, that to be a prophet, you have to have corrected and perfected all of your character traits? Anger? Anger is one of the worst failures of character in Jewish terms. Mo- how could Moses, the greatest of all the prophets, be guilty of anger? How is that possible? And then he says, look carefully at what Chazal said. Chazal didn't say he got angry. They didn't use that phraseology. They said, Bo lechlal kas. He came to the general category of anger. Chazal has no difficulty in saying when a person gets angry, there's a famous statement called a kilo over Someone who, 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 who is angry is as if he worships idols. They don't use that phraseology. They say, Bo lechlal kas. Now, when you read uh, Chazal, um, I'm using an analogy to make contact with people who aren't familiar with Chazal. You have to read Chazal the way you read a mathematics book. Every word in a mathematical theorem is crucial. If you think, if the theorem says, if A, B, C, and D, then E, and you say, I don't see why you need C. I think you can get there with A, B, and D. Then you've missed it! Because if the theory is written, if A, B, C, and D, then E, it means, if you leave out C, you can't get there. And if you think you can get there, you've missed it! Because everything in a mathematical statement is precise. Chazal are infinitely more precise than that. And if you read Paul the Kas, he came to the general category of anger. And you have in your mind, he got angry, you've missed it, because that's not what it says. Chazal, a word for getting angry. And they didn't use that word here. They used a different word. Well, then I meant something different. I've had this experience hundreds of times with Chazal. You know it, and you say it over and everything else, and suddenly you think, oh, wait a minute, they used this word, not that word. They put the words in this order, not that order. And all of a sudden, the light opens up. And it can take decades. It can take decades to figure out what a chazam I just had that experience last week. And I just had the experience, you know, Rav Dess is pointing it out. I had the same experience a half hour ago. But as says, that's not what they mean. It doesn't mean that he, that he got angry. He came to the general category of anger. What does that mean? It means that, what did Moses do? Moses wasn't angry. He wasn't losing control. It wasn't burning up inside. But what? He displayed anger. And he displayed anger because the people had done something wrong. People had really missed the purpose of their, proje- of their project. And to display anger is a way to communicate to people the severity of their mistake. There's a whole philosophy behind that. I don't know if we can, get, we can go into that. Anyway, any rate, he displayed anger. okay, And he chose it. Intellectually, he made a choice. This is the time that's appropriate to display anger. Like the books say about how you should treat your children, it is time, it is appropriate at times to show anger to your children. It's never appropriate to be angry at your children, especially at your children. never appropriate to be angry at anything, but especially at your children, but there are times to display anger. Okay, now, however, seeing as Moses was still physical, When he chose to display anger, there was that tiny bit of shade that comes through a clear lens where the light is reduced by an infinitesimal amount that normal people can't even perceive. And because his physicality was involved, to his extent, with the clear lens, he's physical like a clear lens is physical. It's a physical thing, and some of the light gets lost. So, therefore, he was related to the category of anger. He was related to the category of anger. Not that he was angry. He was related to the category of anger. It's not, not even one, one second, because second, 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 the insight isn't finished yet. And, therefore, Chazal say he came to a mistake. Now, what Destler says, the Torah says he was angry. The Torah says he was angry. What does the Torah mean when it says that? So now, those who were with me from the beginning of this, this, this article, when a source speaks, you have to know the character of the source before you understand it. Um, if Einstein said of another physicist he made a mistake, we would understand that the other physicists didn't just mistake liquid for solid or didn't add two and two, it was like five. If Einstein said another physicist that he made a mistake, you're talking about a very, very fine, refined, subtle mistake. Otherwise, Einstein wouldn't have bothered to comment on it. It's a mistake on Einstein's level, criticizing another physicist. When the Torah says that Moses got angry, it doesn't mean like you and I. It doesn't mean like the guy down the street. The Torah means... What counts for Moses as anger is what he did. And you have to understand, when the word the Torah uses the word anger with Moses, it's the Torah speaking about Moses. It's not the New York Times speaking about someone down the street. It's a different source speaking about a different subject. It says, with this, so that's what it means. When Moses chose, on the basis of an evaluation, intellectual evaluation, this is an appropriate place to show anger, and he showed anger still because he's a physical being, some of that physicality also was involved in the anger. And therefore, as Chazal put it, he came to the category of anger. The Torah calls that getting angry when it's speaking about Moses. And when it says that he that he that he came to to the and it's the same phrase, phraseology, the He came to the category of mistake. Tessa has a very beautiful analysis here. This is the whole school of most of the way they do things. It says why does a person get angry? A person gets angry because he knows he made a mistake. And the anger is designed to cover up the mistake. Deep down, he knows that he's wrong. And he's... Anyway, but the point here is that Moses, what he's saying is that this is called this section here is called the shadow of the body. Moses, who's characterized as the light of God, comes to him like through a Clear, sparkling lens. Yeah, but the lens loses something, and even he has the possibility of of the the chumrius, the materiality of which he's made, causing him to be less than perfectly a reflection of the divine light. Another example is Moses standing at the at the at the at the, at the um, burning bush. Um, God says to him, go to Egypt, and Moses has objection after objection after objection after objection. Right? Finally, God answers all the objections. After answering all the objections, God says, Moses says, send somebody else. <laughs> it's one of the one of the interesting commentaries says. So why did you raise all the objections? If you knew that the answers to the objections wouldn't be good enough, if you knew that wouldn't convince you, so why did you just say at the beginning you're not going? Forget about all the objections. Uh, interesting question why he why he went through all of it. But after all of that, the Chazal say it was seven days. This dialogue at the Burden Bush took seven days. And God is telling him, go. This question, this answer, this objection, this answer. You won't worry what they want to believe you I'll give you miracles to do. Right? I mean God is really going out on a limb. You know, it's giving him everything. Right. At the end says God got angry at him. And he lost. He lost out the, the high priest. He should have been a high priest, and he lost that. Because whenever it says God gets angry, that's just a code word for a punishment. It doesn't mean that God, we don't have any insight into God's inner emotional life. Okay, say Chazal, what was Moses' motivation? What was pushing him here? What was pushing him here is this: He has an older brother named Aaron. Aaron's three years old. and Aaron has been the leader of the people. He's 83 years old. Moses is 80. He's 83. He's been leading the Jewish people for decades. Now, says Moses, I'm going to walk in and take over. Say, Aaron, okay, nice job you did up until now, but you know for this, for the exodus, you're not fit. I have to do it. And he's petrified that Aaron's going to feel bad about it. Feel bad. At some, in his tzielos aloof, right? Somewhere in, there'll be a bad, and Moses doesn't want to cause that feel, bad feeling to his older brother. Even so, God gets angry at him. Even so, God gets angry at him because he pushed it too far. But what did he push too far? Because when God told him to go and gave him all of, these, all of these answers to all of his objections, at that point he should have said, I know I'm afraid of that, but God has taken account of that, and I should go anyway. That was one of his objections? He didn't mention He it. Didn't, he didn't, well, when he said, shlach no tishlach, send through whom, whomever you will send, that's what he meant. You know, Not me, somebody else. And, and, and God re- responds to it. He says, I know that Aaron can speak. I know that you, right? so the, 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 you know, the words aren't there, but the meaning is there. And God responds to that meaning. But God still gets angry with him. So, in other words, the point is, you should have known that at this point, you, should, you shouldn't have pushed that objection. But what was he pushing? Right? He was pushing his care for his brother. So And in that's, what, that's what he failed in. He failed in pushing his care for his brother too far. Right? Not something else. But but it's a failure. Could be worse. So you know, Rav Dessa's point here is that if I would take his failure and measure it by my terms, maybe it would be a great success, (laughs) as I'll show you the other examples that he that he brings here. But but even Moses, whom we have this 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 um, uh, testimony of Chazal that he he, the light came to him through a sparkling lens, Dessa says. Even that has some loss. Even that has some loss. By the way, I, I, I want to insert here a pre because pre explains something here which I didn't see explained anywhere else. Other prophets had lenses that weren't as sparkling. Each prophet had his own lens and each prophet had his own, his own quality of lens. What makes the difference between the qualities of the lenses? So says says the pre gives one, a beautiful uh, 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 analogy for it. Imagine you're standing at night in a lit room Looking out to the outside, the outside is also illuminated. The street lights on, so you can see the scene outside. Now imagine you are standing at right angles to the window. You are not looking at from the side. So when you look out, look at the window. You see two things. You see the scene outside, and you also see a pale reflection of the scene inside, because a, a, a window pane also reflects because of the light inside. And if you're standing there, looking at right angles to the window, outside, what is the reflection of the inside that you're going to see? It's going to be yourself. You're going to see your own reflection. Of course, it's a pale reflection, so you can still see what's outside. But the reflection of yourself interferes with the purity of what you can see outside, the clarity of which you can see the vision outside. Says the that's what interferes. That's what makes the, the lens less than perfectly transparent. It's a reflection of yourself. That's the truth. What,
1: what then does the, the light inside represent? Like ego?
2: Okay, yeah. That, that is what's, it's, it's the force from which ego comes. Ego is a kind of offshoot of it or expression of it. But yes, that's quite right. We spoke about that yesterday. Yeah, okay, but, but uh, now you've been here a long time. The word "raz" is a technical word, and that, that's what it reflects. Let me show you the other examples that he, that, that he mentions here. Um, <coughs> I'm going to put them in order that they can be understood. Um, Jacob. When Jacob uh, hears that his brother is coming to meet him, so he prepares. He sends a bribe with a a message that he wants his brother to 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 forgive him, make up with him. And he splits his camp for war. He prays to God. And then it says he presents himself, his four wives, and all the children. But when you look through the the description, you see that one of the children is missing. Dean is missing. Dina's missing. What happened to Dina? Say he put her in a box and hid her. Because Jacob is afraid. I'm pretending, at least I'm sending a message to my brother that I want to be friends with him and I want him to accept me and i and I'm, you know, and I want to, you know, I and I, I look at him as an angel of God and all this kind of stuff. Now, Dina is his brother's niece his daughter, so his brother's niece. Even according to Torah law, let alone according to the law of the, of the non-Jewish world, of the Torah law of the non-Jewish world, but even according to Torah law for Jews, an uncle is, mar- is allowed to marry a niece. It is very regular, normal, to seal a friendship between two nations or two clans with a marriage. Jacob is afraid. If Esau will see Dinah, he'll say, Yes, we're overcoming old enmities, old uh, uh, a history of less than happy relationship, and we're going to pledge to one another, let's seal it with a marriage. I'll marry your daughter. is right? afraid of that, so he puts it in a box so that Esau won't see her. Now, let me ask you, between you and me, do you see anything wrong with this? Anything untoward about this? Anything nasty about this? I think Jacob's doing terrific. I would certainly have done the same thing. I would have sent her to China. I would have gotten her out of there. You know, who wants an Esau for, a, for, a, for, a, for, a, for a, an in-law? You know? who Say, Chazal, you didn't allow your brother to marry her with permission. That's why she got raped with, by, by Shechem. Okay, that's why it's a subtle business, but that's what, that's what we end up. What did it end up with? She ended up getting, getting raped by Shechem. Say Chazal. Dina could have turned him around. Could have, Dina could have turned Esau around. And Jacob withheld that from his brother. Now, when we read the verses, we never would have guessed at that. This is a fault? Yeah, it's a fault. Jacob's held accountable for it. Jacob's held accountable for this fault. Okay, I, I said it, so I should explain it briefly. I'm, I'm losing up to the time. Uh, I said she got raped. The is the quite clear. She got raped because she went out to fraternize with the non-Jewish girls of the, of the area, right? But the question is this. Okay, she did something wrong, and she exposed herself to that danger. But why didn't her father's merit save her? When she gets raped, it's Jacob's tragedy also. So when you ask why did she get raped, you have to take two things into account: what did she do to generate, the, to to you know, to trigger it, and why didn't her father's merit save her? The answer to the second question is because he he sacrificed that merit. He sacrificed that merit because he really should have made her available to Esau, and he didn't. I get maybe be careful. Why didn't his merit save her from the result of her failure? It's not his punishment that she gets raped. That makes it sound like she's getting raped because of him. No, she got raped because of her own failure. But why didn't his merit save her from the results of her own failure? Right? Because, now, what Vanessa what Des- wants here is see how, how, how someone like Jacob could make a mistake with all the best intentions, with all the best, uh, all the best values, but missing... Because he's pr- too protective of his daughter, he's missing the opportunity that his daughter had to do something great for Esau and so great for the world. Had Esau so been changed, the whole world would have been, dif- been different. But it's a sin that he didn't give up his. Correct. It's a sin that he committed, and, and, and it shows in the fact that his merit didn't protect her from the results of her own crime. Not only. Not only. Not only. That's all very clear. And the Torah is very clear. It says, <laughs> in the ten, ten pronouncements of Sinai, it says, I, who visits the sins of the fathers on the third and fourth generation, for those who hate me. there is quite explicit. Only the third and fourth, fourth generation qualifies those who hate me. So I don't, uh, it can't be just the fault of the ancestors. The children who are getting the faults of the ancestors visited upon them must themselves be guilty. It's only the children are guilty that they have this evidence. A... Well, uh, this verse, I'm not, you're talking, you've switched subjects yeah, yeah. now. You talked about what the verse said. I'm telling you what the verse said. Now you're switching to other factors. That requires another explanation. But the verse is absolutely explicit in Exodus 20. Okay. That's... Jacob. Now, um, I'll go through the other examples as many as we have. Um, what it's time for... The one in says, the world to come is not like our world. Well, it, it quotes a verse. The verse says, in that day, God will be one, and His name will be one. So... When it says God will be one, the Gemara says, isn't isn't God one today? So, the Gemara says, our world is not like the world to come. The world to come here probably means messianic era. Not further than that. In our world, when something good happens, we have a blessing for that. God is good and does good. When something bad happens, we have a different blessing. Tie to MS, God is a true judge. The world to come, meaning messianic era, is a time when there's only one blessing. On every blessing, on everything that happens will said, will be said, God is good and does good. Now, you have to know, these blessings are made on the feelings of the person in response to the events. The blessing is made on how you feel. An event may be objectively good or bad. If you don't feel joy at the good event, you don't feel pain at the bad event, you don't make the blessing. It's a question of how you feel. Now, um, there was a person named Nochem to whom terrible things happened. And he had a phrase. Called, the phrase was, Gam zu Latova. This too is for good. And that phrase has become the phrase of the Jewish people down through the ages. Terrible things happened to him. Physical suffering of an enormous magnitude. And every time he said, this too is good. says of Destler. What blessing did he make? What blessing did he make? The Gemara says, this world is not like the next world. In this world, when good things happen, you make Hatova tovah God is good and does good. When bad things happen, you say he's right, he's true judge. In the next world, meaning the messianic era, everyone will say, just, God is good, and good, is good and does good. And I tell you, the blessing goes on how you feel about it. But here's a man who, when terrible things happened to him, he said on every one of them, this too is for good. What well, blessing did he make when those bad those those bad things happened to him? It says of Destler, he definitely made the blessing of Diana Emmys, the true judge. Why? Because even he, who had his values straight and had his philosophy straight, and understood clearly why things happened, even he, because he has his materiality, felt the pain. At some level and in some way, felt the pain. And although Rav Desta doesn't point this out, at least not here, I've been saying this for years, but it could be that I got it from him and I forgot where. Notice Nachum's phraseology. He doesn't say, Gamzu Tova, this too is good, doesn't say that. He puts in one letter, one letter, Right. Like okay, in mathematics, you put an extra zero. <laughs> what will mathematics say? What? An extra zero? It's an entirely different proposition. Right. He says, This 2 is for good. That means that it isn't, that means that it isn't good. That it, this 2 is for good means that it isn't good. It's only for good. It's a means to good. It will bring to good. But it in and of itself is not good. Because had it been good, you would never say this 2 is for good. You would say this 2 is good. And his disciple of Yekiva, who coined a similar phrase, everything God does is for good, copied the Lamed. He put the Lamed also, for good, not that it is good. Um, What happens, says Rav Dessler, this is an amazing din, what happens when a man's father dies and the father is rich? and the son is going to inherit the wealth. What does he do? The Shekhanarach says he makes two blessings. He makes Dian Ha'emez, the true judge, on the death of his father, and he makes a tov a metiv, on the money. What? He makes a tov a metiv, he's good and does good, on the money that he's inheriting. Now, you say, what are you talking about? The man's father died. Let's suppose that the son loves his father and, and reveres his father and and uh, you know was close to his father and, and you know he's devastated that his father dies and he's full of pain that his father died. He should also make Atova Metiv. I told you Atova Metiv goes on one points it out that, that tova Metiv is, is an expression of the feeling. Are you going to tell me that this son feels good about the money he inherits? says Dester. Yes, that's what I'm gonna tell you. Because somewhere in there, somewhere in there, in that material heart, there's also a feeling that he inherited the money. And the Sheuk the Code of Jewish Law, is very realistic. It's very realistic. That's the way people are. In this world, that's the way people are. I, um, there was a, a person, a great Rebbe in New York who died, and another great Rebbe came to visit his son during the seven days of mourning. And He went through the whole process of comforting the mourners and as this visitor got up to leave he said Mazel Tov Rebbe because the son had inherited his position so he gave him Mazel Tov during the seven days of mourning. That's a reflection of this halacha because it's impossible that the son shouldn't have felt the joy of inheriting the position of being Rebbe together with the terrible pain of the the passing of his father. And that Rebbe who was visiting him was expressing both is relating to both. Right? So, But but this this shows that, uh, you know, a, w- what does it show? That there's always some level of, you use the word ego, so you could say there's some level of egotism, or I would use a, a slightly softer word, self-regard. Self-interest and self-regard. There's always some measure of self-interest and self-regard. That wise, I, I was a, I was happy when you said ego, when I gave Raph Destler's, uh, the pre uh, analogy of the Window pane with your own reflection. There's always some level of self-interest and self-regard, which is a little weaker than egotism, and that's what's being reflected by the halacha here, and that's a reflection of that tzilo goof, the, the the shadow of the body, which everyone lives with, because we're part of this world. Gemara um, says in the Zohar, in the Torah, it says, in the, in the future, God will take the sun out of its shield. The tzaddikim will be healed by it, and the wicked will be burned by it. That's what it says. There's another one, another beautiful duke. It's the kind of question that people don't ask when they read Chazal. You have, be, you, have be, you have to be trained, and you have to think, and you have to be deep. The tzaddikim are healed by it? Healed? Where are they healed from? What are they healed from? We're talking about the tzaddikim, the righteous. The wicked are burned by it. Okay, very good. Maybe the burning, you know, burns out their evil and enables them to be transformed. But why does it say that the righteous are healed by it? Yes, the righteous also need to be healed. They also need to be healed. However righteous they are, there's still that shadow of body which which creates a blockage, which means that they can't perfectly reflect the light, and even the righteous have to be healed. The seventh the eighth day. Sukkot is, is really seven days. And the, the eighth day is another day. You don't sit in the Sukkah on the eighth day, right? You don't take the Lul and on the eighth day. There's a whole question. Why is it called the eighth day then? Eighth day of what? It's not, not part of the same holiday. <laughs> okay, that's the whole story. Anyway, it's the eighth day. Shmini Atsaris, what we call. And there the Torah says, Atzeres tseris Lachem. Shmini Should be for you. And Chazal say, Atzeres kuluchem. The day is for you. Now, uh, uh, the holiday means that you have eating and drinking and festivity. What about Moses? Does that phrase apply to Moses also? Yeah, applies to Moses also. Even Moses, who did everything for God's sake, everything for the sake of heaven, all this eating, all this drinking, there's the lachem, there's a for you even for Moses, there's a for you the, the for you is not eliminated from anyone who's living in our world with a goof, with the shadow of the body the lachem, this is again your expression the for me of it it's definitely there right? but that's what says it, straight that. so this is, he says, the effort that even the greatest of the sadiqim, the the greatest of the righteous, uh, have to undertake. And we have to know that often enough, when the Torah describes the failures, the crimes, the transgressions of the great, it's referring to that, a failure on that level, purifying that tiny remnant of the shadow of the body, like Moses talking about his anger. And not to associate the description of their failures with the level of our failures. Um, I'll give you one final analogy, which I've mentioned in, some, I don't know, in this, this series. The um, Golden Villaina. The Golden learned 16 hours a day on a bad day. Good day was 18 hours a day. Who knows? Did he have an evil inclination? Did he have to fight his evil inclination? What's the difference between the guy and the villain and us? Is it that we're all fighting? He's just very, very good at fighting. He's stronger. He's more focused, and you know he wins ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, and we win fifty percent of the time. Fifty percent of the time we lose. Is that the, the idea? No, it's not the idea at all. I'm learning. What tempts me to 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 stop learning? I know when emails coming in. He, I know when emails coming in. Did the email come already? Didn't it come already? Yeah, I'll, I'll take off for 10, uh, you know, two minutes. How long does it take to, to log on and, 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 and check your emails? Two minutes, right? right? Uh, I'll go back to learning later. That's what tempts me. Tell the, the on, Vilma, you want to check your emails? <laughs> Are you nuts? I'm learning your tices. What could be more sweet? What could be more beautiful? What could be more inspiring? What could be more wonderful? Learning your you know, just, the, the temptations that we, uh, that, that, that we face don't even occur to him. So it's not that he's more successful in overcoming our temptations than we are. He's not in our league. Did he have temptations? Yeah, he had temptations. Here's one that's, that's on record. An angel came to him and said to him, I'm offering you Torah. We'll give you an injection of Torah. Free Torah. And the government said, the only Torah worth having is Torah that you struggled to acquire. He had to say no to Torah. That was the temptation. That was a temptation. For someone for whom the Torah is everything, to say no to Torah, that's a temptation. For us, that was very easy. <laughs> more Torah, less Torah. You know? I mean, uh, we say no to Torah all the time because we could have learned more. We, we don't bother. <laughs> we have other things we have that, that distract us. So I have to understand that this is a good example of the, kind, the difference in level and the difference. Sure they had challenges. Sure they had temptations. Sure they had, had, had projects, things that they had to correct in themselves. But they're not on our level. And as we said at the beginning of the series, when the Torah says that uh, this great person committed this crime, we have to know that it's describing their failures on their level using our vocabulary. And not to misunderstand how the vocabulary is meant to be understood. Okay? All right. Okay. Come to you. I'm glad I thought of doing Tessa. I haven't done this in a long time and uh